In the construction business and can't find what you need, Quality Supply and Tool has served Hoosiers for over a quarter of a century. Tom Hawk is the branch manager of the Indy location on South Harding Street. We've always been big on keeping our shelves fully stocked of inventory of industrial-grade tools, concrete, masonry products, as well as the necessary accessories to help get the job done. You don't have it, you can't sell it. Our experience allows us to help with getting the pros as well as the weekend pro taken care of. Quality Supply and Tool also has locations in Bloomington, Lafayette, and Jeffersonville to help you think outside the box store. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson. Brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. On 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Welcome back to another edition of Beyond the Bricks. My name is Jake Query. Mike Thompson will be joining shortly as well. Beyond the Bricks, of course, our look at the stories, the legends, the personalities of the Indianapolis 500, not only from a historical standpoint, we talk some current things as well, but just beyond the bricks themselves, hence the name, because there is so much that goes into making this the greatest race in the world and the greatest sports tradition in the world. You know, for some people, the Indianapolis 500 is about the pursuit, the ingenuity, the innovation that goes into the automobile, the the chase for immortality. For others, it's just about the tradition, getting together with your family, seeing friends once a year, or taking on those traditions that your grandfather, your grandmother, your aunt, your uncle, your parents passed along to you. All of it goes into making this such an oh-so-special month for all of us. Our thanks to Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box store when it comes to your needs in terms of the equipment that you might need. You can always place an order by calling a local branch and let them stand behind you. QualitySupplyandTool.com is their website. Well, a couple of days ago, we had a lot of fun talking about some of the names and hearing from with Mike Thompson's incredible audio archive. Some of the names of yesteryear. You heard from Ralph DePalma. You heard from Peter DePaulo. You heard from, of course, Ray Haroon, the first winner of the Indianapolis 500. And tonight we focus on a driver that is, to me, one of my all-time favorite trivia questions. Tommy Milton, who had a conflicted history when it comes to the history of the Indianapolis 500, but you could always win a bet with this. He was the first two-time winner of this great event. Multiple winner Tommy Milton, the focus tonight. Yeah, I mean, Tommy Milton becoming the first two-time winner of the Indianapolis 500, incredible accomplishment. I mean, Milton was absolutely one of the best on the board tracks. I don't know if you've ever seen video of those old board tracks they had, like at Altoona and you know, places like that. But, um, you know, I mean, Tommy Milton won 15 races on those old board tracks and, and he was one of the, just the top drivers along with, with Murphy, uh, really, really an outstanding driver on those board tracks. Tommy Milton, again, as we talked about, um, had the, the issues with vision and that's fascinating. You pointed it out on Monday, Mike, this is a driver that you know, not only had success right away and, and by the time, you know, he was at Indianapolis, but realistically, there are probably eras where from a medical standpoint, Tommy Milton would have been prohibited from racing. Oh, I, I think that today it'd be very difficult for Tommy Milton to be approved as a driver. I mean, he he was completely blind in his right eye and only had partial sight in his left eye. 
Um, and so his success, uh, you know, he overcame those challenges. But uh, I think it'd be very difficult for him uh, to, to be approved to, to be a you know, driver in, in today's world um, just because of the fact that he he had that, uh, you know, he was 100 percent. I mean, it wasn't a situation where people say, oh, he, you know, he had partial he had no sight at all in his in his right eye at all. And he had partial sight in his left eye. And, and he was able to overcome those challenges. And he was a great athlete. Um, he was, you know, in doing some amateur athletics and things like that. And then, you know, became, again, the first two-time winner of the Indianapolis 500. I mean, a great story of, of perseverance is Tommy Milton. Tommy Milton won in 21 and 23. He retired from racing at Indianapolis in 1927, but he returned in 1936 where he drove the pace car for the race itself. It was Tommy Milton that suggested that the winner of the race should get a pace car. That tradition carries on today. In 1949, he was appointed chief steward for the Indianapolis 500. And then just three years after that, Tommy Milton joined Sid Collins for an interview in 1952. Hello, everybody, from Indianapolis. This is Sid Collins speaking from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, where the 36th annual 500-mile race will be run May 30th. Our guest is Tommy Milton, for the fourth year, the chief steward of the Big 500. Tommy, you as a winner in 1921 and 1923 are well qualified for this job as the first two-time winner of the Big 500 here at Indianapolis. Tell us what some of your duties are. Well, Sid... uh... I head up the 3A organization for this particular event, and our duties and functions are many, also our objectives. I think one of the things that uh, we concern ourselves uh, mostly about is the, oh, perhaps I should say the orientation of uh, new drivers, drivers who are new to the Indianapolis course who never have driven on this track before, but who nonetheless have had uh, more or less experience on other types of tracks. Of course, the big Indianapolis Oval differs greatly from other tracks, Tommy, so what are some of the tests you give your rookie drivers? Well, we ask them to start out at 100 miles an hour, and uh, we expect them to hold that pace reasonably closely so that they uh, develop the the knack of judging their own speed, and then we step them up to 105, 110, 115, and finally 120. And any driver who, in the opinion of the observer's crew, passes this test satisfactorily is then, uh, so to speak, on his own and may go all out and is presumed to be ready to take part in the competition. Tommy, about how many men do you have under you on your AAA staff and on the observer's crew of which you just mentioned? Well, Sid, uh, that varies from year to year, but there are well over a hundred. That, of course, includes your technical committee and your observers, your timers and your scorers and the others who make the speedway go. Is that, that correct? That's right. Uh, do you find your drivers are rather nervous the first time they take hold of the wheel at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway? Well, Sid, uh, we like to feel that we've made a little progress in that regard. Uh, we believe that we have uh, implanted the, the belief with the newer drivers that our objective is strictly one of cooperation. Uh, as example, we initiated a, a new little stunt a couple of years ago, uh, whereby we gathered three or four of the boys and with 
one of the established drivers. They were taken around the track for oh several laps and were told this is where you get on and this is where you get off and and this is the so-called groove so that they uh, were not quite so much in the wilderness on their first trips alone. That seemed to help. And of course they, I'm sure, feel much more confident knowing that you, a driver and a winner yourself here at Indianapolis, along with many of your staff, have been on the track during the May 30th race. As a matter of fact, uh, Sid, uh, we use a great number of former race drivers and we feel that it's a good thing because at least theoretically we understand what, the, what problems the boys face and we think we know something of the solutions and we do try to help them in, in every possible way. Well, thank you very much, Tommy Milton, the chief steward of the 500-mile race here at Indianapolis. We'd like for you sports fans to be in Indianapolis for the time trials on May 17th, 18th, May 24th, and May 25th, and race day, May 30th. Tommy Milton in 1952 with Sid Collins. Uh, this headline and article from July the 11th in the New York Times of 1962. Uh, the Dateline, Associated Press, Mount Clemens, Michigan. Tommy Milton, pioneer auto race driver, who was the first to win the Indianapolis 500-mile classic twice, was found shot to death today at his home near Mount Clemens. He was 68 years old. Later, they would determine and find out that, tragically, those shotgun wounds that fatally injured Tommy Milton were self inflicted. Uh, Peter DiPaolo is somebody who is connected to Ralph DePalma, not just from a familial standpoint, not just from the standpoint of winning the Indianapolis 500-mile race, but also in the standpoint of having audio that Mike Thompson has found. And we'll play that for you next when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. Brought, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box store. Fans, is no surprise the 1950 Mercury has been chosen to set the pace in this year's 500-mile Memorial Day race. Because Mercury, always a great car, is now better than ever in every way. Get behind the wheel and take this great car on the open road. You'll find an ease of control you've never before experienced, a new responsiveness of power, a stability and performance that will instantly show you why Mercury is setting the pace in more ways than one this year. For that same reason, Mercury is now breaking all sales records with more people driving Mercury than ever before in history. Call your Mercury dealer today. Go for a ride. You'll go for Mercury. In Indianapolis, visit Strickland Motors, 3327 North Illinois Street, or Fred Williams, Jr., 850 North Meridian Street. If you live outside Indianapolis, consult the classified section of your local telephone directory. This has been Sid Collins with Speedway Gossip for the past three weeks. And it's indeed been a pleasure to have his final sponsor as Mercury to bring you this series of broadcasts. My thanks also go to the many engineers from WIBC who have carried our very heavy portable tape recording equipment about the track in the pit area, the pagoda, the garage, and able to bring you a comprehensive picture of what's happened here pre-race day. Also to Jimmy Shelton for giving me a hand on production. We'll see you then Monday night on the Borg Warner Mutual Network broadcast, 8.30 Central Daylight Time, and of course, race day all day from the Pagoda. Now back to our main studio. Well, thank you, Sid. In the main studio for Beyond the Bricks, Jake Quarry along with Mike Thompson. A reminder to you folks, if you are going to get that new Mercury at 3327 North Illinois, please be careful and watch for the kids that are on their way to the Children's Museum. Want to make sure that you... And, and by the way, Mike, little known fun fact... Uh, they're at 33rd in Illinois. Obviously, that dealer is no longer around. But 
just south of that, and I don't have the exact address, but just south of that is the home where Joe Dawson, the 1912 Indianapolis 500 winner, lived with his parents when he won the race and went back to his folks' house before many of them, uh, when I say them, many of the people who had attended the race were so focused on the fact that Rolf De Palma should have won that race that they didn't realize that Tommy Milton actually had left the racetrack and was at his parents' house on Illinois Street when they showed up and he was sitting there eating lunch, kind of resting and getting ready to go down to the YMCA in downtown Indianapolis to take basically a steam bath to relieve all of the pressure and the the jolts. You can only imagine back in those days, Mike, how physically demanding it must have been to run those cars, especially over all of the bricks for as long as they did. As I understand it from that story he's told, when Dawson showed up, his mom was surprised that he that he was there. And then it was, hey, gee, can I get a sandwich? And I just won the race, by the way. <laughs> and 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 uh, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the pounding of the bricks over and over and over. I mean, uh, you know, in later years, it actually put the pounding actually put Jimmy Bryan, one of the toughest characters ever i mean put him in the hospital and he ended up missing milwaukee so um you know i mean definitely definitely tough mike the next driver for us to feature here is peter DePaulo, who of course is the nephew of ralph De Palma, who we talked about on monday and peter DePaulo was kind of introduced to racing as well by witnessing his uncle racing and partaking a little bit peripherally as well yeah, Pete, Pete DiPaolo, I mean, he he had a meteoric rise uh, as a driver. So uh, another another driver who is uh, his career just absolutely took off. I mean, he he rode with his uncle uh, as a riding mechanic when they had the riding mechanics, the two seat cars were with the riding mechanic uh, that they had. But, uh, you know, Pete DiPaolo had a very, very quick ascendance to the top of of the of the heap in racing. You know, when you look at the fact that. I think so many, Mike, of the drivers from yesteryear, we forget about the fact. I mean, as you mentioned, being a riding mechanic, and I know that you still have drivers today that have probably that engineering or that technical acumen, but so many of the drivers in the early years of Indianapolis were more than just drivers. They really were working on coming up with each and every year new ways to find speed in a race car or in a car in general but they were working the rest of the year when they weren't racing many of them were working on the engineering and the actual mechanics of a car itself oh yeah uh, absolutely and and i mean pete DiPaolo had a long career involved in racing he was another one of those guys who was involved in racing all the time i mean even after he stopped racing as a as a race driver a lot of folks won't remember the fact that Pete DiPaolo was a was a well known NASCAR team owner, and and they won a number of races. To, you know his his DiPaolo engineering team, and he had some of the biggest names. I mean, fire guys like Fireball Roberts that people will know, and Buck Baker. I mean, Buddy Baker's dad. I mean, you know, Pete DiPaolo was involved uh, very very heavily in in racing. Uh, you know during and after his his racing career he had wins as a driver and owner with his own team but that was after he won in indianapolis more on that in a second 1922 was his rookie year for DePaulo in indianapolis then he came back ran in 24 and then in 1925 peter DePaulo wins 
at Indianapolis. That was 33 years before he would do what many did, and that was join Sid Collins for an interview. Here is Peter DiPaolo in 1958 with Sid Collins. We always invite many guests to drop by and say hello to us for a few moments, and a very good friend of ours, a good friend of racing, a man who won the 500-mile race for the first time anybody ever went 100 miles an hour, averaging these 200 lasses, Pete DiPaolo, who in 1925 became a great champion and has uh, retained his interest in the sport throughout his entire life. Pete, it's good to see you back in the tower again. Thank you, Sid. Nice to be here. What do you think of this uh, start of this race this year? I don't mean, of course, the fatal injury. I know you feel as deeply regretful about that as I, but uh, there's something uh, radically wrong with the way the race has gotten underway this year, evidently. Sid, you're so right. This is the sorriest start we've ever had in Indianapolis, and I'm sure the, the feelings are the same with everybody up in the stands that uh, they've made a horrible mistake in changing the, the customary start that we've had for so many years. When they asked them why they changed, they said it's for safety. Well, last year we had, if you remember, two cars were out on the first lap. And here this year, 10 cars were out uh, on the second lap, and we lost that wonderful boy, Pat O'Connor. With all due respect to the winner, I'll say this would be uh, more or less it of a hollow victory. And I'm sure the, the winning driver will feel the same way. Well, Pete, thank you for taking time to stop by. It's good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Your friends in California and across the country are glad to hear from you. Thank you, sir. That was Pete DiPaolo, our great winner in 1925. And what Pete DePaul is referring to there is in 1958, for the second year in, in a row in 1958, there was a kind of a disorganized situation that happened at the beginning of the race. And unfortunately, there was there was an accident in 1958 that, that took the life of, of Pat O'Connor. But the... The situation in 1957 and 58, when they when they redid the pit lane and did all the, the work and they built the master control tower, instead of having the cars, as we know it today, uh, gridded on the racetrack, which they had done for many years, they changed it in 57 and in 58, and they assembled the starting grid single file on the pit lane. And then they were supposed to go out from the pit lane and then assemble in the rows of three on on the track as they were driving as opposed to having the grid already assembled on the front stretch and in 57 there was an accident prior to the start of the race when eddie russo and elmer george got together russo was eliminated from the race uh, right away and and uh you know as as was elmer george so there was there was a kind of a confused situation there then the second year in 58 the same thing. The, the front row pulled away, but they they passed the pace car, and they had, they were trying to wait and catch up. And there was there was all kinds of confusion again in '58, um, which some people have said led to um, the disorganized start, where uh, you know they had the accident with the the, the sad fatality that we where we lost Pat O'Connor, and I think that's what Pete DePaul was referring to. And, and they they stopped doing it after that because of the fact that it. It didn't work in 57, and it didn't work again in 58. And the winner in 1958 that he had mentioned, Jimmy Bryan. And, of course, the irony being there that Jimmy Bryan is somebody who himself would be fatally injured in racing. Unfortunately, not entirely uncommon in that era versus the era of today. Peter DePaula would later return to Indianapolis in 1971. He sang back home again in Indiana. Then in 1975, he made it back where, once again, he talked with Sid Collins. And next to me is the man who helped put the roar into the Roaring Twenties, the golden age of sport. The gentleman who won the Indianapolis 500 50 years ago, almost today on May 30, Pete DiPaolo. Pete, the recollection of that day as we sit here together must bring a tear to your eye and a lump to your throat. Sid, as I sit here looking down there, 
I can go back 50 years when I was in the middle of the front row. And just with that thought, my heart palpitates to its highest peak. It is beautiful to be here, and I'm sure that what I did 50 years ago, I added my little part towards the great knowledge which these boys have gained on this two-and-a-half-mile Indianapolis Speedway. Pete DiPaolo, when you see this tremendous crowd here today, and it looks to me like the biggest one we've ever had, over 300,000, how many people do they say were here in 1925 to watch you win? They say 185,000. I saw that in one little square, but I thought it was around 100. And, of course, that to us looked like a million in those days. It, you were the first man to top 100 miles an hour for 500 miles, a record that stood for seven years. Does that seem fast to you now? Well, not now. Of course, when I set that record, if anyone would have asked me, do you, Pete, do you think they'll ever go 200 miles an hour? I'd say, you better go see a psychiatrist. And now, of course, they're doing that coming down the home straights. And uh, it's just beautiful for me to be up here and watch them, Sid. You must have a special feeling right now because a couple of years ago you were here on our broadcast as a guest and you said, Sid, I want to be here for my 50th anniversary of my victory. Now you're here, you're being heard all around the world right now by 100 million people, and I'm thrilled to share the moment with you, Pete. Sid, I was so happy this morning. I drove the Duesenberg, an exhibition lap uh, that I drove in uh, 1930, and my wife Sally was my riding mechanic. She did a good job, too, and you got the biggest thrill to see all these people. Just great. And you were the Grand Marshal of the Festival Parade yesterday. It's been a big month for you, hasn't it? Right. And, of course, being, in that, being the Grand Marshal was a great honor. And even the, the Festival the Parade had half a million people, practically. Pete, when you think about the other great stars who ran with you, and I have just a second, Jack Dempsey, I don't mean ran racing, but Babe Ruth and uh, the other Red Grange who were there playing in, in their sport, you're the one who's still selling a sport so much. And we wish you all the luck in the world in the future. Thank you, Sid Collins. Pete DiPaolo, racing's goodwill ambassador, today enjoying one of the finer milestones in his entire life. 50-year anniversary. That was in 1975. That means it was a 40-year anniversary of when Pete DiPaolo saw victory at Indianapolis, not as a driver, but as an owner and team manager. He was that title for Kelly Patillo's 1935 win. We will come back and talk about a couple of other of the great names from yesteryear at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and hear from them in their very own words in the audio archive library from Mike Thompson. We'll do that when we come back on the other side here of Beyond the Bricks. This is Beyond the Bricks, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store is the sponsor that we thank for bringing you Beyond the Bricks here. Jake Quarry, Mike Thompson, Sam Fritz and Eddie Garrison, Todd Meyer for that matter, those that work on the other side of the wall and helping put together this program. And we're having a lot of fun here at the outset of this particular month of May. Yesterday, some great stuff hearing from Sid Collins. And then as we talked about on Monday, some of the stars of the early years, that includes our conversation. And Mike, I'm really interested in where we go from here because we just got done hearing from and talking about Peter DiPaolo and then a couple of names, you know, one of which I think is really well known, but I think if you had to make a list, as you know, Mike, you and I talk a lot 
over the course of the year just about different things aside from even racing and and i'm a kind of a history guy and oftentimes i think about u.s presidents and some of the u.s presidents that are the more obscure and those that you don't hear in the names and in the likes of jefferson and adams and washington and the same is true of indianapolis 500 winners and you know the reality is that when you talk about for that matter some that were born in indiana which we will talk about more over the course of the month but our next topic of conversation and one that we will hear from is a guy that quite frankly i don't know and maybe i'm wrong here mike you you would know better than i in terms of the memorabilia shows and the collectibles and maybe this person's roots to indiana allows for a footprint here that is more so than the average fan might realize but i don't know that we hear a lot about george souders when people talk about drivers of yesteryear no that's that's sadly the case um and part of that is because he had such an incredibly short career sadly um i mean he in in championship racing i mean he only had three starts in championship racing and one of them was winning the indianapolis 500 um, and then he also had a third place in the Indianapolis 500, and that's two of the three starts he ever had. I mean, so think about that for a minute. He he finished first in the Indianapolis 500. He finished third in the Indianapolis 500, and he only had one other start. And in that other other start, he was injured, um, and in that that basically ended his career. And so. Uh, that's the unfortunate part of, of George Souders' story is that his career was so short. Um, there's not a lot of George Souders' memorabilia out there. And although he was, you know, we were lucky that he, he you know, he lived a, a long time. He lived into the mid-70s. And so we get a chance here in a few minutes to hear from him uh, in, a, in a rare audio, which I, I'd like to, to tell you a little bit more about. But but it's it's sad that George Souders isn't, isn't more remembered. He was born in Lafayette, George Souders, and as we talked about, May 31st, 1927 was when he won as a rookie in Duesenberg in the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Five hours and seven minutes, 33 seconds, at an average speed of 97.545 miles an hour for George Souders when he won. And this is a guy that, unlike the others, Mike, I think his route to becoming a race car driver he had been around vehicles but it might have been actually for a tragedy that got him really completely immersed in racing because he was a student at purdue university when his father passed away and at that point i think george souders really kind of transitioned his focus in terms of his career into racing and as you had talked about earlier with you know some of the tracks around the Midwest, George Souders is one of those that was running on dirt tracks around the Midwest to begin his career, Mike. Yeah, uh, you know a lot of these guys had those those type of beginnings, you know, and and that was where where you got started. And and George Souders is is uh, another one of those one of those people. And you know he was in the right place at the right time to get the ride he got, um, you know, and, and become a rookie winner and. You know, had a great, great opportunity to win, obviously, again, the next year and, and came very close to winning. But, uh, a, you know, very, very short career, unfortunately. And you had mentioned the fact that this audio, you know, this is a man that lived again into 19, 
76 when he passed away if i'm not mistaken was the year that george souders passed away so you know clearly he was around july 26th of 1976 he was around as an older man but uh the audio is still somewhat rare so take me through what we're about to hear here so this is actually from a television program um from wish tv believe it or not uh, this is from a show that they did. They did a bit of a where are they now type program where they interviewed a couple drivers. And uh, we'll hear a little bit more of this uh, in, a, in another show later in the month, I think. But this was a show that uh, the late Chet Kopic did when Chet Kopic was working at Wish TV. And he actually had Johnny Parsons Jr. with him. And they, they kind of did tag team interviews of people. And they interviewed several different people from the past and, and talked to uh, – uh, Floyd Davis and Paul Russo, and they hap- they happened to get George Souders to come out uh, the year before he passed away and do an interview at the Speedway uh, talking about his win, which was really cool because it was the first time I had ever heard George Souders talk. And that's one of the neat things. I think we talked about this before. It's one of the neat things, I think, about this show and about what we have here is you're getting to hear from George Souders, who, you know, may be one of the more obscure winners in the history of the 500, but you're getting to hear on tape from George Souders about winning the Indianapolis 500. So it's a really special piece of audio. Chet Kopic, Wish Television, 1975, and George Souders. It used to be Victory Lane here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and back in 1927 on Memorial Day, all the attention was focused on this gentleman, George Souders, who won the race with the second fastest victory margin in the history of this great event, 12 minutes. And uh, George, the obvious question, what was your hurry? <laughs> well, I was just running a steady, steady pace, and I think, as I remember, it seemed to me like I did anyway, I slowed down a whole lot after the 400 mile mark, after the second pit stop. I think what impresses me the most about your performance is that going back to 1927, everybody had relief drivers, but you ran the entire event by yourself. Was your nickname Iron Man? No. <laughs> but I was in pretty good shape at the time. That was your that was your first year, George. Yeah. Uh, you were a rookie at Indianapolis. Here, and yeah. you won the race uh, at Indianapolis, yes. And I remember my rookie year last year uh, was uh, the happiest thing in my life to make the race, to just make the race. But to, to win the race on your rookie year, I imagine you were really uh, uh, overwhelmed. Well, you see, I didn't get in until the third attempt, too. Oh, you had three attempts well, in qualifying? Well, three attempts, and I was on the last one. But as I remember, and I believe that's right, I turned the fastest time trial that last day. They qualified about 15 cars the last day. A little, uh, and a little significant about your engine size, too, I understand. Well, and I say, and that doozy happened to be the smallest one ever won the 500. <laughs> well, no bigger hand than I got. I could almost get my fingers around the piston. George, you're from Lafayette, which makes you kind of the local boy made good here at the 500. Uh, over the years, we can talk about Wilbur Shaw, and there have been several others, but notably, there have not been a great number of Indiana drivers who have competed here at Indianapolis or in other phases of auto racing. Why is this? Well, there's there's a lot of drivers in Indiana, but I don't know, for some reason or other, they just didn't, a lot have been a lot of good drivers here and never had any luck. I had a lot of good luck both times. I finished both races anyway. Was that a new car, George, that you won the race in in 1927? Well, I don't think the car itself had competed here a year before. It might have been some of the parts, but then that was a straight 91-inch engine, the smallest one of all time, and that was also the most expensive race engine the Duesenbergs ever built. Now, both Augie Duesenberg told me that, but he didn't give me a very definite answer. Now, they were awful good friends of mine and finer people I've never met and great engineers. And I was talking to Augie one time. I said, Augie, how much did that automobile cost? 
He said, well, George, that was a good one. He said, no, that cost around 50000 And then one day I met this Cornelius Van Rantz, who was a draftsman. They made up all the drawings for him. And a mighty fine capable fellow. He was the head draftsman for the Cord Corporation. And a, you know, a smart fellow and made up a lot of designs for a lot of things that was off standard anyway. And I was talking to him about it, and he told me it cost 52. <laughs> so now there's two men that either one of them, either one of their opinions would be good in my book. Yeah. George, in 1928, of course, you were the victim, unfortunately, of a very serious accident which brought an end to your racing career. Uh, as the years have gone by, has the desire still been there? Have you still burned for that well, one last opportunity to come back to the Speedway? Well, I like to come here. I, I wouldn't want to try to drive anymore because I've got this one arm's no good. And if I wasn't contrary, they was going to cut it off up here at my shoulders, so, you know. Uh, well, I, in other words, the one-armed man don't belong out there. Actually, as a member of the Speedway Old Timers, uh, unfortunately, several years ago, if I'm not mistaken, your trailer up in Lafayette uh, burned down, didn't it? Yes, and uh, the Old Timers really came to bed for Oh, George my God, Sawyer's. I'm never so surprised in all my life. A group got together, and a lot of them from right here. And before I knew it, I, I had a new trailer coming. And then somebody suggested that I get it over to Indianapolis. So I live right here and I like cross the road from right where we're standing. George, when Tony Holman says, gentlemen, start your engines, what type of feeling do you get? Well, I like to hear it. And there's a, but there's the greatest asset to the racing business this country's or the world's ever known. There's nobody ever done the job he's done here, anywhere. And you can see, look at it today. When I was here, those were old wooden stands that were ready to fall down. The fire marshal could have condemned the whole works, I think, four or five years before he bought it. George, when you were here in Victory Lane on a Memorial Day in 1927, what was your first reaction? Well... Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm rich, I'm rich. <laughs> but I see, the, now the Speedway's got some old-time pictures, and one of them is a close-up of Bill White and I, and me sitting in the car, and I looked like I'd had a pretty good workout. That is George Souders, who, by the way, his racing career came to an end in 1928 when, after a good finish at Indianapolis, he was invited to race in Detroit. He was offered a $750 guarantee. He showed up to do so and had a bad accident. He was unconscious for many months afterwards and decided enough is enough. And so as a result of that, George Souders called it a career in terms of his racing. But nonetheless, Mike, pretty cool to hear from him with Chet Kopic. Oh, absolutely. I, I really like that interview, and it's just a lot of fun. And, and getting to hear from, look, I mean, again, the guy, George Souders, I mean, he won the race in 1927. So getting to hear somebody from the golden age like that, uh, you know, that's just priceless audio in my book. Mike, I was out in Southern California recently for the IndyCar race in Long Beach, and an interesting thing happened either last year or two years ago. I was with the guys that I work on the IMS radio network with. Uh, Alex Wolf was with me. Michael Young was with me. I think Ryan Marine, Rick Evans, our engineer. And we were basically killing time before our red eye at LAX, and so decided that we would go see the Great Western Forum where the Los Angeles Lakers had played games for so many years of my childhood and is now right next to the new stadium, the, the massive stadium in the NFL that the Rams and the Chargers play in. 
So we go and we're kind of venturing around that area, and right across the street, I see a massive cemetery, Inglewood Cemetery, and thought, oh, okay, and it was right around dusk, so they were closing, so we didn't get a chance to go in, but I got curious and thought, well, I'll look up who is entombed in the cemetery, if there's anybody of note, maybe, that put it in a file for the next time that we're in the area, and lo and behold, I was stunned to see that Louis Meyer was those uh, among those who are resting in this very pretty cemetery in California. So, of course, this this year, we made it a point, circled it on the calendar. Ryan Marine, Michael Young, and myself went back to the exact cemetery. Um, I couldn't find buttermilk to toast Louis Meyer at his resting place, but we did take milk for him. Uh, but you're talking about, and we're talking about, in terms of the backstories of the Indianapolis 500 and the traditions, uh, very few are more connected than Louis Meyer. Oh, I agree with that. And and Louis Meyer, I unfortunately I didn't get to meet him in person, but I corresponded with him a couple of times, and was really lucky to get to do that. And and I sent him a couple letters, and and I mean I think at the time he was 87 or 88, maybe up. He was pretty up there in age, and and he passed away when he I think he was 91. But I, I wrote him for a couple autographs over the years, and and it never failed. Both times I wrote him, he put in between the pictures I sent him pink napkins, and I still have the pink napkins because I thought it was so cool that he took you know he he wanted to make sure that nothing happened to my pictures, so he separated the pictures with these little pink napkins that you you know you get the you know, at the, at the, the store or whatever, you know? So I just thought it was so nice that, you know, here's Louis Meyer. I, I was just envisioning him sitting at his kitchen table, putting, you know, pink napkins in between each of my fi- photos before he sent them back to me. And of course those pink napkins, when he was at home, he might've used to dab milk off just in case he had a milk mustache. It was Louis Meyer that first started that tradition, drinking an ice cold bottle of buttermilk as you've heard donald davidson talk about so many times after winning the indianapolis 500 he was a winner in 30 uh, 28 33 and 36 and take me through mike real quick the 1963 sound we're about to hear this is actually some interesting sound because uh this is obviously the beginning of the rear engine revolution and louis meyer is you know looking into the future here as and seeing you know at this point louis meyer obviously was involved with uh with meyer and drake obviously and, uh, you know, seeing the future uh, of what the rear engine cars were going to bring to Indianapolis here. So this is Louis Meyer from 1963. Back at Indianapolis once again, alongside me is the winner of the 500 mile race here three times in 1928, 1933 and 1936. The great Lou Meyer, he was national champion, did everything in running, but he's the exponent of the Offenhauser engine. And as we mentioned him, a car is is burning. One of those Mickey Thompson Harvey Aluminum cars is smoking heavily going into the south turn. Yellow flag is out right now. We'll get the report. However, Lou and I were talking the other day out here in the uh, infield about the Offenhauser because his plant makes the Meyer Drake engine that has dominated this race for a long, long time. Lou, today you're seeing something that may make you uh, do what? I don't want to put words in your mouth. You're seeing something, aren't you? Uh, yes, we are, Sid. Those Ford Lotus are the two finest racing machines that we've had here for some time. And the way things are going, they should finish one, two, with uh, no stops to make. Uh, Parnelli is doing a terrific job staying out there in the lead, but he has another stop to make, I'm sure. And I'm afraid that it'll be a miracle if he can win this. 
Well, we've had a lot of different predictions now in this booth today, and that's why we're here to find out, isn't it? What about the engine situation, Lou? Are you still completely satisfied uh, with your own comment about the rear engine cars, that what you're doing is going to be right in the future? Uh, Sid, uh, we're satisfied with the engines. Uh, I think uh, Farnelli has uh, proven that. These cars that we have our engines in, these chassis are awful heavy. And I don't see uh, how they're keeping up the pace that they're doing now. Uh, as you know, a lot of them been in the wall with this fast pace, and it's only due to the heavy cars. Uh, and we would also like to uh, build a new light engine, but we'll have to see what happens here. Were you surprised the no buys all went out? Uh, no, Sid, I, I was not. Uh, I think the uh, Granatelli boys done a terrific job. Those cars are also heavy. They're heavier than any of the rest of them, and I didn't think they, they would finish. Lou, thank you so much for your comments. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Sid. Right. It's been a pleasure. Lou Meyer, great three-time winner of the 500. A.J. Foyt coming in the pit right now, and let's swing down to the number one turn and pick up a comment from Bill Froesch. Well, perhaps Bill Frosch would have commented on the fact that 1963 was the year that Louis Meyer was inducted into the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Hall of Fame. Another one of those guys, Mike, that aside from um, putting pink napkins in letters all the way up until the year in which he passed, which was November 7th of 1995, he'd been living in a retirement community in Nevada. And as I'd mentioned, he is uh, his final resting place is in Englewood, California. But one of those that racing was simply not only in his blood but his genetics because louis meyer's family um you're talking about a number of different people that he influenced and impacted in helping them getting involved in racing as well oh yeah of course uh sonny meyer uh you know famous engine man of course is sonny meyer is his son and uh butch meyer uh his grandson is uh, obviously involved heavily in the sport as well so um you know definitely a family affair with the with all the myers and and just like i say every you know there's so many people in racing we could say this about it because it, it's such a just so many people in the sport are such wonderful people but i've never heard anybody say a negative thing about louis meyer um, just a just a joy to be around as i understand it from everybody who ever met him and and sonny was that way um i got to meet sonny several times and just a just a jovial person and really just enjoyed talking about his dad and enjoyed talking about all the things that that he had done in racing before uh before Sonny sadly passed a couple of years ago you know truly remarkable when you think about the fact that the career of louis meyer you know you're talking about somebody that was racing in the 19 in the late 1920s um and so therefore racing against some of those names that we've talked about and heard from already this week and then still within his lifetime was able to watch on television and see Jacques Villeneuve win the Indianapolis 500 I mean you know you want to talk about an expansion that goes and bridges from the the days of past to really almost into the current because Jacques Villeneuve of course racing within the last you know dozen years at the Indianapolis 500 mile race it's fascinating the way things can all interweave and web together mike uh, another fun and fascinating show where you were able to interweave and web a lot of great audio we appreciate it and it's so much fun i think we should do a couple more of them over the course of the month what say you i am in so let's do it all right for mike thompson i'm jake query you folks have a wonderful remainder of the evening thanks for listening to the beyond the bricks brought to you by quality supply and tool think outside the box store